0: Our text today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul writes, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I am so deeply moved by this act of communion this morning. Our need to strive to be pleasing to you has ceased in Christ. All legalism has died in Christ. All need to prove ourselves to you as though we had anything to offer you has died in Christ. And oh, what great news that is for sinners. Lord, I'm sure that everyone agrees with me when I say that I so often feel like Paul did in Romans when he said, Oh wretched man that I am, the things that I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I want to do, that I do not want to do, I keep on doing. And Lord, how true that is of us. There are so many things we long for, so many things that we know we ought to be in this life. So many things we'd even really like to be in this life, and yet we seem to keep undermining ourselves and undermining the things that you're doing In our lives, the things we want to do, we do not do. And the very things we don't want to do, the things we know we want to repent of and know that we need to repent of and leave behind, we keep doing them again and again and again. We are so broken, Father. We are so desperate. Oh, wretched people that we are. Who will save us from this body of death? Paul said. Well, blessed be the Lord our God in Jesus Christ. And then those Great words of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation is left. You took it all for us on the cross, Lord. You broke your body. You spilled your blood and you took it all from us. Our sin past. Our sin present right this moment. All of our sin future. Gone in Christ. Forever. And how we praise you for that. How we bless your name for that how we rejoice in that and lord how i pray that something of the reality of that would land on every single one of us this morning our sin is gone in christ it's gone hallelujah it's gone and that's why we praise him that's why we sing so please Forgive our sin and receive our offerings of thanksgiving this morning. And Father, I just pray that You would break the back of the devil, break the back of this world, break the back of our flesh upon us and set us free to worship You and to pursue You in the way that we want to do that. Oh God, please set us free from these things in Christ. Give us the joy of the Lord this morning, which is our strength. And now Lord, as we turn to Your Word and spend a little bit of time meditating together, on what body life is all about and what mutual submission is all about. I pray for wisdom and insight, Lord. Lord, You know my heart. I so long for these things to land upon us deeply inside of our hearts. It's easy for me to stand here and just speak the words and then live in a way that's different from everything that I say. And it's easy for us all to sit here and listen to the words, listen to the Bible, and then go out of here unaffected by what we hear. And I just want to ask that You would not allow that to happen, but that as Your Word goes out, You would cause it to grip our hearts, to enlighten our minds, and to change the way that we actually live our lives. Please, Father, as I said in our prayer meeting before the service, I have purposes for this sermon, and they may or may not happen, but I rejoice in the fact that Your purposes for this sermon will happen. And I ask now in the great name of Jesus Christ that they would... May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our God and King, who gave His life, that we might be free. Amen. Amen. It is grace to be free in Christ, to be totally free in Christ. Amen. The chains are gone. They're just gone. And I pray that the reality of that would land upon us this morning. For the last couple of weeks, We've been talking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because that's what the Apostle Paul says that we ought to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says that an essential part of being filled with the Spirit of God... One of the essential fruits of being filled with the Spirit is that there will be an air of humility about us in the way that we deal with each other. We will be a people who submit to one another and who have a submissive attitude in everything we do. We've learned several main lessons thus far, but I just want to reiterate two this morning. First of all, I guess I've already said, is that mutual submission and the essence of it is walking in humility toward one another. It does not undo the authority structures in our lives But it does infuse those authority structures with humility. And we'll be looking at that over the coming weeks as we get into the latter half of Ephesians 5 and the first part of Ephesians 6. We'll see that real clearly. And then the second main lesson that I want to reiterate this morning is that mutual submission, when it's offered out of reverence for Christ, is worship toward God because it's born out of a sense of awe and respect to Jesus for what He's done for us. So I humble myself toward you out of reverence for what Christ did on this cross for all of us. So it's an act of worship. And our submission toward one another makes concrete the fact that I am submitted to Christ because it just doesn't make any sense for me to say to Jesus that, Lord, I am submitted to you, but I refuse to submit to the authority structures that you have placed in my life. It's just nonsensical. And so, when we submit to the authorities that the Lord has put in our life, it's a way of us tangibly submitting to Him, and therefore, it is worship. This week, I want to add to these couple of lessons by arguing that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is central to the gospel. Or, at the very least, it points to something, and it is tied up in something that is central to the gospel. And here is what I mean. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ assumes... That we have been reconciled to one another in Christ. And that reconciliation was performed for us by Jesus on the cross. It was, it was central to what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. And then when we walk in submission to one another, all we're doing is displaying the fact that we have been reconciled in Christ. And so there's more involved in this the, the small decisions, whether to submit or not to submit, there's more involved in that than we might think there is. And I want to spend this morning talking about that a little bit. And I want to begin by showing you how reconciliation to one another is related to what Christ did in dying on the cross. And then I want to talk just a little bit about the implications of that. I'm going to give the whole sermon next week to talking about implications. Next week will be about 10%. Bible exegesis and 90% application. But for today, I want to lay the theological groundwork. So if you'll please turn back with me a couple chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read verses 11 through 22. We'll be looking at three texts this morning. The first is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. This text shows how the reconciliation of the Jews and Gentiles was at the heart of what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. He was not only reconciling us to God he was reconciling us also to each other Paul writes in verse 11 therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel so far from being reconciled to the jews as gentiles we were alienated from them we were divided from them we were strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who once were far off meaning gentiles have been brought near by the blood of christ For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, which is to say, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken us, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, Thereby killing the hostility. In other words, on the cross, Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, which was a very high, tall, thick, and significant wall. He broke that thing down, reconciled us to one another, and then together reconciled us to God. Then Paul continues in verse 17. And He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is Jews. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You have been reconciled to the saints, and you are members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, the picture is that on the cross, Jesus Christ broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and through his body on the cross reconciled us to one another and then together reconciled us all to God. In Jesus Christ, we are not a scattered, unconglomerated group of individuals who worship Him. Quite the opposite. In Jesus Christ, we are one people. We are one body. We are part and parcel of one another. We are intimately involved in each other's lives, whether or not we recognize it, if we are in Christ. We are reconciled to one another in Him. We are being built together into a temple for Him, a holy temple. We are being fashioned by the Holy Spirit into one dwelling place for God Almighty. And this is our destiny that one day... The great God who saved us will literally indwell us as a people of God. The Bible says in Revelation, I think it's 21 or 22 in there somewhere, in in heaven there will be no need for a temple because God Himself will be the temple and we will be His temple. We will commune with Him face to face in Jesus Christ. This is our destiny. We are one people. We are one people. And Jesus Christ worked this for us on the cross On that cross, He was not only reconciling us to God, but He was also reconciling us to each other. This is not a peripheral thing. This is right at the center of what it was that He was doing on that cross. Now please turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. This text shows that this sort of horizontal reconciliation, if you will, is not just a theological abstraction that has to do with Jews and Gentiles, but that it in fact relates to every single Christian person on the planet. And so your fellowship with Christians is profound, it's deep, and it's far-reaching. doesn't matter where they are on the earth. If you're a Christian, someone over here is a Christian, you two are one in Jesus Christ. Jesus worked that on the cross. So starting in verse 1, John writes, "...that which was from the beginning..." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's talking here about Jesus Christ. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And, and pay attention to why they proclaim this so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a really important sentence. That word fellowship in the English has the word, the Greek word koinonia behind it. And koinonia, you've probably heard that word before. It's one of my favorite Greek words just because it sounds so beautiful. I love that word, koinonia. It means literally to have a commonness with one another. The root of the word means common. So it means to have a commonness of life together, or a sharing of life together, or a participation of life together, or to be reconciled together, to be one, to be common, and in this case, in Christ. So the reason that John and the other apostles had so much passion to preach the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfectly righteous life, And died a real death. His body really was broken. His blood really was spilled. He was put in a grave where he stayed for three days. And then he was raised from the dead by the power of God and ascended to the right hand of the majesty of God where he sits right now. And he did all that so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be forgiven their sins and live with Him forever and ever and ever. If you you don't know Jesus this morning, friend, just believe in Him. You will inherit eternal life by simple belief. This is the gospel. And the reason the apostles were so passionate to proclaim that gospel was so that more and more people might come into a commonness of life with one another that was based on and rooted in their commonness of life in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John and the other apostles were not only laboring so that people would come into fellowship with God, but they were also laboring that they might come into fellowship with each other. This was central to the way they thought about the Gospel. Of course, in their minds, there was a proper order there, right? Reconciliation with each other is not possible if we're not first reconciled to God. That is the basis on which we're reconciled to each other. It is the power by which we continue to be reconciled to each other. But you can't separate that from our reconciliation to God. It's just like when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment in all the Bible? And He answered, not with one commandment, but with two, right? He said, the most important thing is love God with everything in you. And the second thing is, love your neighbor as yourself. And he had to mention both because they are inextricably intertwined. You can't pull them apart from each other. To love God necessitates that we love one another. And to be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ means that we're also permanently and forever reconciled to one another in Jesus Christ. Friends, from the very beginning, sin has been destroying relationships and dividing relationships but christ came to turn all that around and in christ the curse is reversed and we can have real reconciliation with each other that is permanent that is permanent despite the fact that we continue to sin so strong is his body broken and his blood spilled that it even covers our present sins so that we're still reconciled to one another. This is the gospel. It's central to what Christ did on the cross. Now look with me at verse 4. Let's continue. There's has a couple more thoughts here. John says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, While we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sins. Now, isn't that an odd sentence? I find that odd. I would have expected the sentence to say, that since walking in the darkness means I have no fellowship with God, Then, walking in the light as he is in the light means that I have fellowship with God. But that's not what he says. He says that walking in the light as he is in the light means we have fellowship with one another. And the reason he says it that way is because the reconciliation he worked between us and him on the cross, he also worked this way. And these two things are deeply, deeply, deeply intertwined with one another. If you'll think about this for a moment with me, I think that your own experience will testify to the truth and the depth of this connection between our reconciliation to God and our reconciliation with one another. If you give yourself to sin during the week, wouldn't you testify that it has the effect of dulling your affections toward other people and especially toward the people of God? When you give yourself to sin during the week, doesn't it make you want to isolate from other people and especially the people of God? Doesn't it fill your mind with excuses for why you can't come to church that week or why you can't go to a small group that you're a part of or why you can't attend this event or why you can't go over to so-and-so's house? You come up with all these sophisticated things, but truth is at the bottom of the heart, our hearts have just become numb toward each other because we've sinned toward God. Isn't this your experience? It's my experience When I sin, I become dull towards you, and I don't particularly want to gather near you, because to break fellowship with God is to break fellowship with you, even if my sin is not directly against you. This is just how it is. Think about when Adam and Eve sinned at first. What did they do? They broke a command of God by eating off a tree. They were expressly told, do not eat off that tree. What's the first thing they did? They hid from each other. That's the first thing they did. That's what clothing each other themselves was about. They were hiding from each other now. Before, there was no need for them to hide. There was nothing to hide. But now they sinned, not even against each other, but against God. And what did they do? They hid from each other. And then when they conspired together, they conspired together to hide from God. This is what sin does. It causes us to hide from one another because this relationship, this way and this way, are deeply intertwined. And if you turn it around, the converse of this is also true. In those times of life, when you are seeking the Lord with all of your heart, when you're going after Him with a passion, you're stumbling, you're falling, you're failing, all that stuff, but you are going after Him with a passion, you're laying your life down for the good of other people, you're laying your life down that other people might hear the gospel and respond to it and have life. When you're living a life like that, doesn't it have the effect of inflaming your affections for the people of God? When you're pursuing Jesus, you share in David's feeling when he said, I can't wait to get to worship. I long to come into the house of the Lord. I long to be with the people of God. And the reason that is true in our experience is because to inflame fellowship with God is to inflame fellowship with one another. It's just how it works. These things are deeply, deeply, deeply related to one another. And the main thing I'm trying to get us to see is this was worked for us on the cross. On the cross. When Christ was dying that day, He was not only reconciling us to God, but also to each other. Obviously, the main thing He was doing was vertical, but He was also doing a very important and central thing at a horizontal level. Now, one more text. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. I want to read from verses 41 to 47. And in this text, we begin to move away from the theological foundations and meanings of reconciliation this way, and we just get a picture of what it looks like in real life. We begin to move toward the implications. If everything that I have just said is true, then a the question that we could ask is, what should that look like? What should the church look like? How should we be doing life together? And Acts 2, to 47 is one of the best pictures in the Bible to answer that question. Luke writes, So, those who received His Word, Peter had just preached a sermon, those who received the Word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I just think that is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what life in Christ ought to look like together. Here were several thousand people, probably with the other believers that were there, you're probably looking at four to 5,000 people who now made up the first church in Jerusalem. First church was a mega church, by the way, just a, just a thought there. It grew very quickly by the grace of God. And these people were deeply devoted, though not to church growth, but devoted to God and deeply devoted to each other. They expressed their devotion to God by being devoted to solid biblical teaching. That's what I take that phrase, the apostles' teaching, to mean. They were devoted to solid teaching. This was not a superficial church. This was not a people who were just talking about superficial things. You know, ten ways to make your little life happier or something like that. That's not what they were doing. They were talking about solid biblical teaching and they were new believers and they were growing in this way and and reaching a lot of people in this way. They expressed their devotion to God by being devoted to partaking in the Lord's Supper. In the early church, they took the Lord's Supper every single time that they got together. They were devoted to praying. These, these were a praying, praying, praying people. In fact, you probably remember earlier in chapter 2 in Acts, remember the Holy Spirit came down upon the church and filled them with power for ministry? Well, what had preceded that was many, many days of prayer. They locked themselves up in a room and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed until God came down upon them. This was a praying people these were people who were devoted to attending worship together they would go constantly all the time to to the temple together to worship the lord together these were people that were devoted to sharing the gospel of christ with non-believers they were absolutely devoted to god and there were life habits that could prove that devotion or at least display that devotion that they had to god and also they were very deeply devoted to one another these people did life together Life for them was all about life together. They were in each other's homes regularly. If you read that, I don't remember exactly what verse it's in. But it says they were in each other's homes regularly. In verse 44, there it says, And all who believe were together. They were together. So they had a value. I don't know exactly how this worked in their culture. And believe me, don't fool yourself by thinking that it was simpler in their culture for them to get together than it is for us. It was not simpler. All you got to do is do a little bit of historical research and you can see that life was just as complicated for them as it is for us. They just had less technology. But in some ways, lack of technology made their lives harder for them than it is for us. And so it was complicated, but they were committed to doing life together. They spent time with each other, bottom line. These people were committed to helping each other, not just by being in each other's presence, but they were devoted to sharing their their physical resources, their material resources with one another, as a visible sign of the invisible fact that they were one in Jesus Christ. I want to take a couple minutes and talk about what that looked like, the sharing of resources, because I think there's some misunderstanding about it in certain sectors of the church, and yet I think this is a profound thing that was happening here. So I want to push into this a little bit. There are some people in the church who have tried to make the argument that the early church was was, uh, living in a primitive form of communism that what they did was they gave up all rights to private property, they handed all their property over to the church, and then everything was used for the common good. So it was a sort of primitive form of communism. But I think with a little bit of care, you know, looking at what the text actually says, we can see that that's actually not what was going on. The members of the early church were not coerced in any way, shape, or form to hand their possessions or their properties or their proceeds over to the apostles or to the church. That's what cults do, right? That's not what the church does. That's what cults do. Cults woo you somehow into their little group, and then they find ways to get you to sign your house over to them or sign your car over to them. This is not what the church of Jesus Christ does. The reason the first Christians were selling their possessions and distributing to those who had need was because they were deeply grateful to Jesus Christ for what He had done for them on the cross. And they were deeply committed to one another because in Christ they were united with one another. It was an overflow of gratefulness and love that caused them to give up their possessions. It was not coercion at all. It was not the ideology of communism that caused them to do what they did. It was the overflow of profound thanksgiving and worship for Christ that caused them to do what they did. And all of it was willingly done. It was a profound sense of our commonness with Him that caused us to let go in our hearts of the material things that we own in this life. Now, one of the ways I know that the first Christians were not forced to give up their material goods and their properties, but they did it of their own will, is the story of Ananias and Sapphira that comes a little bit later in the book of Acts. You remember what happened with this, with this couple? They were a married couple. They owned a piece of property somewhere in the Jerusalem area. I don't know where it would be. The Bible doesn't say. They decided together that they would sell that piece of property and give the proceeds to the apostles so that the proceeds could be distributed to the church and especially to those who had needs. But here's what they did. Let's say just for the sake of conversation that their property was worth $150,000. I have no clue what it was worth, but let's just say that. So they sell the property, they get the full price for the property. They got 150 grand in their hand. But what they do is, they only give 100,000 of it to the church and they tell the church, "This is the full selling price for the property." And then they pocket the other 50 grand. So they sell it for 150, they pocket 50, give away 100,000, but they tell the church this was the full price of the property. And by way of revelation from the Holy Spirit, Peter understood that they were lying. That they were trying to deceive the church. And if I get the picture right, I think they were doing this in front of the whole church. I think they came up in the midst of a worship service or whatever and offered this in front of everybody. And the Lord says to Peter in some way, shape or form, they're lying. They're lying. So what did Peter do? Did he say to them, Ananias and Sapphira, you've lied and you've kept back a portion of the prophets. Hand it over. Give us the rest. Is that what he did? That's not what he did. Listen to what he said. You can see this in Acts 5, 3 to 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself Part of the proceeds of the land. Now, if you stopped right there, you might come to the conclusion that Peter's trying to you know, put the screws to him to get the other 50 grand out of him. But that's not where he goes. Listen to how he continues. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So what he's saying is, Ananias, when you had that piece of property, that thing belonged to you. You were under no obligation whatsoever to sell it or to do anything that we wanted you to do with it. That was your land, and it was to be dealt by you before God. We had nothing to do with that. So you had full rights to do whatever you wanted with that land. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the money was yours to do with as you wanted to do with it. You were under no obligation from the church to handle that money in any particular way. So, he concludes, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then with those words, you remember what happened. The Holy Spirit came upon Ananias and struck him dead right there in front of the whole church. And just a short time later, his wife came in, repeated the lie in front of the whole church, and the Lord struck her dead too. Just a little bit of a rabbit trail. I think the meaning of that scene there, with them actually being struck dead in the middle of the church, can you imagine what this service would be like if someone came forward this morning and got struck dead right in front of us? That's a shocking thing. And this really happens. The meaning of it is, don't play with God. He's not to be played with. He's a gracious God, but He's a great God. Do not play games with God. He's a consuming fire. Don't play games with Him. And so the Lord struck him dead right there. But one of the things we learn from that little scene is that the first Christians were absolutely not coerced or even encouraged to hand over their property to the church. This was happening completely by the free volition of the people in the church out of thankfulness for God. And I hope that that's really, really clear to us this morning. That kind of thing is what koinonia is about. That kind of thing is what body life is about. That kind of thing is what commonness of, in life in Christ is about. When I love Him so much and I love you so much that my material possessions mean nothing to me because you mean so much to me in Christ. That's koinonia. That's commonness of life in Christ. And that kind of life is an integral part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and should represent for us normative Christianity. That should be just normal Christianity. Some of you, you have no idea how you thrilled my hearts when I've heard some of you talking in hallways and here and there about, hey, listen, I have a chainsaw that you can use. Why should you go spend $200 on a chainsaw when my chainsaw is sitting in my garage and I only use it once a year? Come and use my chainsaw. And if you break it, so what? We'll deal with it. You have no idea. I've heard things like that so many times in this church and you didn't know I was overhearing you. That really thrills me. It's just a silly chainsaw. I'll grant you that. But it's a symbol of something that we feel united in Christ. And who cares if you break my chainsaw when you use it that once a year or something. We'll live through it. But we have a commonness of life in Christ. Our possessions are not the most important thing to us. This ought to be normative Christianity for us. We ought to be sharing in life and in our possessions with one another of our own free will. Not under coercion, not as a program of the church, but just of our own free will. This is the picture of how life in Christ ought to be. Not just possessions, but giving of ourselves in a whole host of ways. This is why, I don't know if you've noticed in the past as you've read the New Testament, but it is absolutely packed with what are called one another commandments, one another statements. I looked every one of them up this week. And there are 26 unique one another statements in the Bible. Probably about double that of of appearances of one another statements in the Bible. But 26 specific unique commandments. I'm going to put them up here. You don't have to jot all that down because all that is in your sermon notes. But I do want to read them just for the force of it. Here's what the Bible's saying. Love one another. 13 times. The Bible tells believers, love one another, love one another, love one another. In John, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, 1 John, 2 John. Live in harmony with one another, Romans. Do not pass judgment on one another, Romans. Welcome one another, Romans 15. Instruct, teach, and admonish one another, Romans and Colossians. Greet one another, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter. Wait for one another, be patient about it, 1 Corinthians 11. Care for one another, 1 Corinthians 11. Comfort one another, 2 Corinthians 13. Agree with one another, 2 Corinthians 13. Serve one another, Galatians 5 and 1 Peter 4. Do not provoke or envy one another, Galatians 5. Bear with one another, Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5. Don't lie to one another, Colossians 3. Encourage one another, 1 Thess and Hebrews. Do good to one another, 1 Thess. Stir up one another to love and good works, Hebrews 10. Don't speak evil against one another, James 4. Don't grumble against one another, James 5. Confess your sins and pray for one another, James 5. Show hospitality toward one another, 1 Peter 4. And finally, number 26, be humble toward one another, 1 Peter 5, 5. And again, there's 26 unique commandments, but they appear about 54, 56 times somewhere in there. And you read the letters in the New Testament, it's just over and over and over and over and over again. Do life with one another. Love one another out of reverence for Christ. The reason that this command is so often repeated is because our reconciliation to him has vast implications for our reconciliation to one another and this is not just an accident of circumstance this is something that jesus christ has worked on the cross as i said earlier from the very beginning sin has been dividing us but now christ by breaking his body and spilling his blood has worked to unite us so here's the practical implication of that when we give ourselves to life with one another, when we choose to pursue one another, when we choose to do the one another commands with each other, we are choosing to cooperate with the work of Christ in the gospel. And when we choose against one another, when we isolate from the body, when we refuse or just fail to do life with one another, what we're doing in essence is not breaking fellowship with one another, but in essence what we're doing is we're working against the gospel in the world. We're acting like a cancer cell in a healthy body that's actually attacking the body. That's what we act like when we isolate from the body of Christ? Because I, I'm just hoping that you see it. Central to what Jesus is trying to accomplish is to do this with his people, to bring us together, bring us together, bring us together. And when we refuse to do that, we work against him. And of course, we all do that all the time, don't we? This week I have done things in my life that would isolate me from you and you from me, but praise God by the broken body and the spilled blood, the Lord covers all of that. But I just want us to see when we make Simple choices about going to church, about being involved in each other's lives. The main thing we're making a choice about is the gospel and the work of Jesus in the world. It's not mainly about our horizontal relationships, but mainly about what He is doing in the world. Next week, I want to talk a little bit about how doing life together in this body at Glory of Christ might look in the coming months. And I'm not going to be unfolding a new program or something like that, but I do want to bring you into a conversation that Kevin and Mike Perry and I have been having for four or six months about how we should think maybe a little bit differently about how we're doing life in the body here together. But This week, I'd like to encourage you just to think about that. With everything I said last week about mutual submission being worship, and then everything I've said this week about the relationship between the gospel and mutual submission, what should that look like then in the way that we live our lives together? And please just think about that. And then next week, I'm going to bring a sermon on that topic and and we'll see where the Lord leads us. For now, let me just end where I began by saying that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is central to the gospel, or at least it points to something central and that something central is reconciliation. So when we pursue that, we work with Christ. When we fail to pursue it, we work against Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for leading us to be a church that just systematically follows your word. If I was left to my own devices and my own way of thinking, Jesus, I never would have thought to bring all these topics up, but because it's right there in Ephesians 5.21, the topics came up. And so I praise you for your word. I praise you for your wisdom. I praise you for your grace to make us into a church who values the word of God. And I pray that you would take my weakness and the strength of your word and do great things in this church, Father. Please cause us to be a people who cooperate with your great work in the gospel in the world. We love you for what you're doing and we give ourselves to what you're doing. And we rise now to praise your great and mighty name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.